I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, December 5th, 2023. Coming up, we'll discuss the current Global Climate Conference and what's at stake with Dr. Alice Alpert, a senior scientist at Environmental Defense Fund, and Tom Yulesman, a journalism professor at CU Boulder who has covered climate since the 1980s. Listening to the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. A major global conference, climate conference, is underway in this week in Dubai amidst a year of record-breaking heat and devastating impacts from wildfires, flooding, drought, and lots more around the world. It's called COP28. That's short for the 28th Conference of the Parties of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. A mouthful. The meeting, which started on November 30th and ends December 12th, has drawn thousands of national leaders and diplomats from nearly 200 countries, as well as policymakers, scientists, environmental organizations, and environmental and social justice activists. The goal of this conference, as was the aim at the first COP meeting in 1995, is to have nations address the climate crisis and help developing countries and especially vulnerable communities adapt. Our two guests today are here to help shed light on some key themes and negotiations at the conference, as well as what's at stake for the future of all life on Earth. Dr. Alice Alpert is a senior scientist at Environmental Defense Fund, a nonprofit organization focusing on climate change. Before joining EDF, Dr. Alpert served on the U.S. delegation to some previous COP conferences. Dr. Alpert joins us from her office in Chicago. Alice, thanks for, so much for coming on the show. Good morning. And Tom Mulesman, a science journalist who has covered (laughs) climate science for many decades, and he's a journalism professor at CU Boulder and the director of the Center for Environmental Journalism here. He also writes a climate blog called Imagio for Discover Magazine. Tom, so great to have you back on the show. It's really great to be here. Thank you, Susan. So I want to dive in. Alice, I know you're not there in Dubai, but if you could just take us to the scene. First of all, this is being held in the desert of the United Arab Emirates, one of the biggest oil producers. The chair of the conference is the head of the biggest oil company. And sort of give us a gist of what are the key themes and the goals of this COP? Well, as you said, there are, I've heard upwards of 100,000 attendees, um, many Uh, government delegates, but also a lot of civil society, as we talked about. And it's an opportunity for companies and countries to make climate announcements and commitments that may not be specific to the the UN convention. Um, 
Yeah, go ahead. And I, I wanted to have you sort of set the stage a bit because the big year was 2015, right? Yes. So the UN con Framework Convention on Climate Change kind of in the early 90s, countries decided they agreed that they needed to do something about climate change, but they couldn't really decide on exactly what. And so that's what these annual uh, conference of the parties are, where they meet and they try to make decisions about the way forward. And what was what was really a landmark in 2015 was this specific document, the Paris Agreement, which was a roadmap on how countries individually and collectively can reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And um, it also set out some very specific goals for temperature, uh, for limiting the temperature rise due to human activities. Thanks. And Tom Yulsman, if you could take us not just to 2015 when those goals were set, but where were we then, where are we now in terms of actual global warming and emissions on both a global scale? And then if you could zoom in a bit on U.S. Sure. So um, the agreement in Paris reached at that uh, COP21 conference in 2015 set legally bar uh, binding international climate change um, goal of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees C, or that's 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, um, and above pre-industrial levels, uh, and absolutely don't exceed more than 2 degrees uh, C, which is 3.6 degrees F. Mm -hmm. Now, if that doesn't sound like a lot, it actually is, uh, and because uh, you know we are already experiencing some pretty dramatic climate changes. So, and, and we're that, now at roughly what levels above those pre-industrial levels now? Well, it's it's interesting because uh, data show that between January and October of this year, 2023, we were actually 1.55 degrees C above the January-October average for, you know, long-term from 1850 to 1900, or I should say for the pre-industrial. So we've actually nudged up above it. But it's because there's a strong El Nino happening right now, mm. and there are all these events that tend to push things up a bit and push things down a bit. And so we'll go back down after this El Nino is over. And the important thing to realize, this goal of limiting 1.5 degrees C is over, you know, kind of a, a long and extended period. So we're not quite there yet, but what we have hit so far gives us warning that may, we may be closer than we thought mm -hmm. to that threshold. And this has been a mighty weird year on the climate front, even though in the U.S. we've averted the wildfires of last year, say, but around the world, I mean, wildfires, floods, give a sense of each month, it seems, there's record-breaking heat. Where are we this year yeah. on a historic trend? Um, and I, I wrote a column earlier this year uh, talking about global quote-unquote weirding, which was a term that was coined by Hunter Levins, a climate scientist, activist uh, person, years ago. And it was an extremely weird year. Um, uh, temperatures in, in Phoenix, uh, for example, soared above 110 degrees F, uh, for a record-shattering 31 days back in July. And when that happened, people began turning up in emergency rooms with third-degree burns after having fallen to the pavement. Mm. Now, that said, it you know that has happened before, but it was happening on a much more frequent basis than ever, ever before. 
up 30,000 feet up in the atmosphere, the, ge the jet stream became, I mean, the word deranged is not too extreme. It was very wavy, loopy, swirling, a pattern that was really not normal. A very and loopy year. It was a loopy <laughs> year, and it helped these lock heat domes in place that mm. made these heat waves so common. Um, one meteorologist called the pattern insane. Uh, a very well-known uh, climate scientist named Michael Mann likened it to a Van Gogh uh, painting. <laughs> And it led to other things as well. India had heavy monsoon delu deluges that inundated cities for days. Wildfire season in Canada was out of control. It sent smoke streaming all the way to cities like New York City, and it turned the skies a sickening shade of orange. And I could go on, but mm. we only have a few <laughs> minutes, so I won't. Thank you. And um, Alice Alpert, I want you to take us back to COP28 now in Dubai, and how are these trend lines playing out in terms of negotiations, pledges, et cetera, in Dubai. Right. Um, that's actually a really great transition because the kind of main event, one of the main events at this COP is um, an exercise that's held every five years to assess collective progress towards those long-term goals, those temperature goals. It's called the global stock take. And this uh, COP28 marks the final and political phase of that process. So here, the goal is to produce an outcome, like a, a statement or a document that will inform parties in updating their climate targets, which are known as nationally determined contributions or NDCs, that every party will be submitting a revised version in the next year. So this is the process for countries uh, commitments to progressively increase in ambition and try to close the gap on um, reaching those those goals. Because right now, if you add up all of those commitments, they don't quite get us to 1.5. That seems actually an understatement. But so if we're in the final stage of this sort of progress check since the Paris Agreement of 2015, one, are there teeth behind this? And in, in, in if not, what next? What does it really mean? Right, that's a great question. And it goes back to the whole architecture of the Paris Agreement, which is nationally determined. Um, the only binding aspect, binding on, on countries nationally, is that they have to report their emissions and their activities. Um, but the goals are collective and there's no way to really enforce that. Um, but the idea is that there's this kind of political mechanism that can enforce kind of shaming of countries that that don't have high ambition. Do you get a sense that it's working at all so far? I mean, it certainly looks like developing countries are doing their best to not just lay out the realities of how vulnerable they are to the impacts of climate change, but how the rich countries are actually not paying their dues. Right. Well, um, Actually, I think there's there's a lot of potential. It's all it's all in flux right now, but um, the stock take process produced a synthesis report that distills 18 months of really deep technical dialogues, and it tells us that we're not currently on track to reach those goals, as we said. Um, but it does bring out some really concrete uh, messages to guide action in specific solutions that are within every country's reach. So if we if if countries can actually bring those messages through in the final document, 
um, that can then inform countries as they update their commitments. So I want to take a look at some of the sectors where some progress has been made, somewhere not so much. Um, and it seems especially significant. I think today is the day they're focusing on transition out of fossil fuels. Other days have had different sub-themes, but we'll focus on that. And um, Alice Alpert, I want you to address methane, methane emissions, and some pretty significant recent targets and sort of re-upping of pledges with some money behind them on that front. What does it look like now? And how hopeful are you on that front? Right. So um, just to give a bit of background on methane, it's an extremely potent but short-lived greenhouse gas. So while carbon dioxide determines our long-term climate future, um, non-carbon dioxide greenhouse gases like methane have an outsized impact on near-term temperatures and the rate of temperature rise. But fortunately, there are opportunities to address methane pollution that are readily available, technically feasible, and cost-effective. Um, methane from fossil fuel operations is actually the single biggest, fastest action that industry can take and governments can <laughs> encourage uh, to slow this warming crisis with almost immediate benefits. And at the COP, we're seeing a number of announcements about um, specifically oil and gas methane. Um, the Global Methane Pledge was launched a couple of years ago and, uh, to, and under that, countries agreed to collectively reduce uh, methane emissions by 30% by 2030. And more and more countries are- Sorry, to reduce 30% from what levels? From the 2015? From 2020. Of levels. 2020, got it. Yeah, and I will say that is a big stretch. It is consistent with keeping temperatures to 1.5, though. But the question is always, where is the money to help to do that? Mm -hmm. Because when I was on the team that was actually putting together this pledge, a lot of developing countries would say, sure, that sounds great in principle, but we can't do anything unless you give us support. And that comes to the finance that you were mentioning before. So in the last year, um, there has been an additional $1 billion in new grant funding for methane reduction mobilized. And that's a combination of governments, philanthropies, and the private sector. So that's a lot of um, opportunity, but it, it's still putting those plans into action and making um, bankable projects is, it's a huge amount of work. So that sounds really big on the one hand. And how much so far has the U.S. pledged? And of that, or are actually forked out, and of that, what percentage is from the expectation that private industry, i.e. oil and gas industry, will pay the rest? I don't know the specific breakdowns within that aggregate number, um, but it's it's a combination uh -huh. of, of money. And does it seem quite significant so far? Like, what do you expect to be some of the first, I don't know, measurable outcomes of that? Well, definitely a big um, related con um, development is stronger um, reporting, measurement reporting and verification of these 
methane emissions from oil and gas production. And so there are there are a number of kind of coalitions or groups of countries and companies that have committed to reducing flaring, which is a, a practice that can also emit methane. And there's a huge amount of new data that's becoming available to really track that. So that means that those emissions can't really hide anymore. Um, and uh, thank you. Tom, I want to turn to you since you've covered sort of emissions and actual warming. How does this square with you? How is it looking, particularly here in the U.S.? Well, I have a, I tend to kind of look at the big, bigger mm -hmm. um, picture, at least that's what I've done, um, and carbon emissions, you know, generally. Uh, so uh, we'll look at the U.S. first, and then we can talk about um, globally. Um, the U.S. U.S. emissions have been... Um, lower uh, than they were uh, since 2007. Um, so that started us on the right track. Uh, during COVID, they dropped pretty significantly, but then rebounded pretty significantly. The wonders of staying at home. The wonders of staying at home, not commuting, etc. Um, and since then, for the past two years, slight growth, essentially flat. So that's not good enough. We need it to continue to go down, and we need it to go down quite a bit faster. And we did have legislation last year, a pretty, pretty significant legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act, which promises to help push that curve down faster, but it needs to go down faster still. Globally, um, I see from my reporting some cl uh, conflicting data. Uh, maybe, maybe we can talk about uh, why that is. Um, uh, the Energy Inf Information Administration of the U.S. says that emissions are, they project that emissions will rise 15% over 22, 2022 levels by 2050, which is absolutely not consistent with yeah. 1.5 degrees C or 2.0 degrees C. I mean, that means continued warming. Um, and uh, But on the other hand, very recently, the International Energy Agency uh, predicted that global emissions from, and we're talking about from energy use in particular, um, Namely, May peak electricity, any form of energy use, right? Um, generating electricity, transportation, um, uh, that they could peak as early as this year, which is hugely that would be hugely good news, and that definitely by 2025. And they have different ways that they look at this. Um, the IEA does modeling, pretty complex modeling of the global energy system and economy. And it's an intergovernmental. Not panel, but yeah, agency. But it, yeah, right? yes. It's not like either one of these two is an activist. Right. No, they're data not, tracker. Not. Yeah, I mean, although the that there's EIA, such a differential between them. Well, yeah, yeah, and the EIA is a U.S. agency, mm -hmm. but um, it would be in their interest to paint a more optimistic um, picture, but they're not, and so it must be something in the methods. So I'm hmm. not sure what the mm -hmm. differences are. Um, Alice Alpert. Do you have a sense of like why this discrepancy? I mean, one looks fairly promising and the other not at all. Right. I'm, that's very interesting. I actually haven't seen that discrepancy, but I think that my awareness of the overall projections are closer to the IEA scenario. So I'm, I would be interested. I think maybe the, the explanation will be in looking at those methods for the US EIA. So for those joining us, 
late. You're listening to KGNU. I'm your host, Susan Moran, and I'm discussing the current global climate conference and what's at stake with two guests, Dr. Alice Alpert, senior scientist at Environmental Defense Fund, and Tom Mulesman, science journalist and director of the Center for Environmental Journalism at CU Boulder. So there was a recent report just um, reported in a bunch of media outlets from this research firm called Rhodium Group, showing how it looks among different sectors and comparing them. And like to your point now, Tom, so I'll turn to you, it looks like the uh, power and transportation sectors are peaking and projected to decline in terms of emissions from those sectors. To some degree, the building sector as well, you know, embedded energy and building. Um, on the other hand, industry and manufacturing, and maybe some of that is data centers, <laughs> looks like emissions are going to explode. So, you know, some look better than others, but what do you what do you make of that, Tom Yulesman? Um, yeah, I mean the 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 it, all of this depends on Right. Um, uh, uh, which sector you're looking at and how optimistic you want to be. And if you want to feel optimistic, look at the rate of um, renewable energy, adoption of renewable energy, solar and wind, mm -hmm. which has exploded beyond anybody's imag imagining. On the other hand, you look at another sector, it can make you depressed. Uh, so you have to hold these conflicting ideas in your mind. One thing is is abundantly clear: we the the window may be still open, as some say, to limiting temperatures to 1.5 degrees C, but it's open to crack. And if we don't start going much faster, that window's going to close. That doesn't mean we fall off the edge and we turn into <laughs> a like a grotesque pumpkin or something. But um, uh, we need to really ramp things up. And just to give, like, really briefly a sense of what the world, our lives, would look like at 1.5 degrees C or exceeding that warming target. Yeah, I, I just, just quickly say that, you know, that's in some sense an arbitrary number that they had to choose to give us a goal, right? So it doesn't mean, like, the minute we go above 1.6 and then everything shifts, but things tend to exponentially ramp up. The kinds of things that we've been experiencing, the, the increases in wildfire, drought, heavy deluges, those will really ramp up in a, in a really great way that become very difficult for us to manage and adapt to. Not impossible, but much, much more. And of course, the, the, it's going to hurt the, le the most vulnerable among us, the poorest societies among us the most. Hmm. And on a future show, I'm going to be focusing more on sort of the climate inequities and efforts that are making some progress and others that aren't on the global and, and domestic front. So we just have a couple minutes left, but Alice Alpert, I want to turn to you and ask you a couple both personal and universal questions, I guess, and that is what keeps you up at night on this front and what gives you some hope? Well, I can say um, what keeps me up at night is thinking about the long-term effects of these temperature rises. So we've talked a lot about kind of these immediate effects. As soon as you have a hot summer, there will be more wildfires and heat waves. But there are other parts of the climate system that respond over longer timescales. And particularly, those are the vast stores of ice that we have on our poles in the Arctic and the Antarctic. So the longer we are at these 
elevated temperatures, then the more those feedback cycles get in gear. And when that ice melts, it can, it cause it goes into the ocean and it causes sea level rise. And that really scares me. Mm. Um, the degree of sea level rise that there has been at times in the past when temperature was similar to what it is now, it kind of gives us a, an amount, a, a sense of committed sea level rise. It'll take a very long time to get there because it takes a long time for ice to melt. But that's what keeps me up. And it's not just about building more seawalls. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And but I certainly can, seeing I the effects think... in the U.S. as well. So um, thank you. What... We only have a minute left. So I'm going to turn to um, Tom. And what about you? Uh, keeps you up at night and for that matter gives you hope. Yeah. So what keeps me up at hope, uh, what keeps me up at night. <laughs> Good place um, to be are, up. Is, you know, what we know from uh, past climates uh, and Alice alluded to that. Um, you know, there are, there have been tipping points in the past. Um, we, there, you know, contrary to much doom that you hear these days, where it doesn't look like we're anywhere close to a quote-unquote tipping point. But that is the thing that scares me. And the thing that makes me optimistic is the progress that we've made without any really concentrated, coordinated action on climate. I mean, things look a lot better than we thought they would. So really important, including on local levels. And we've addressed some of that in shows and we'll be doing more of those on future shows. So thank you both so much. That was Dr. Alice Alpert, a senior scientist at Environmental Defense Fund, and Tom Yulesman, a science journalist and the director of the Center for Environmental Journalism at CU Boulder. Alice, thanks so much. Thank you. And Tom, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show is produced by me, Susan Moran, and engineered by Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Melissa Etheridge. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and X. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran.